Hi everybody, welcome along to this year's annual market update seminar, the 15th in our sequence. So 15 years of reporting what's going on in the world and how it may impact you as an investor, Australian property market and general markets through shares and currency, etc. You know, lot to talk about as always. It's been a very, very eventful year. You know, COVID's been in full force. You know, we've had lots of you know ups and downs, but uh, you know, it's it's another interesting crossroad in humanity. And this year I've named it Welcome to the New World because I think we've now moved into the next phase of what life is going to be, you know, post-COVID. We're seeing all of that emerge around. So we're going to discuss that and how that's affecting everything generally today. So I hope you enjoy it. Look forward to taking you through it. As usual, we have to start with a disclaimer. You know, these are my personal opinions. You know, all my sources are referenced. Please don't act on any matter in this uh, uh, webinar, you know, until you've taken personal advice for your circumstances. You know, so we look forward and, you know, take it up, take the information and then think about it thereafter. In starting, I always like to start where we finished off last year and see how we went. In last year's seminar, you know, it was a very, very you know, crazy year. We, we uh, didn't know what was going on. There was lots of chaos, but we actually got really, really on the money with all of our predictions. In regards to stock markets, you know, we did think that the, the US market was, you know, probably overvalued and, and would be volatile, you know, and uh, the Australian market was undervalued and had the potential to outperform. And that indeed was the case. What we didn't see, thankfully, is a US market correction, at least not yet. But it has been a little bit volatile, but it's still been pushing forward and growing, which to me is quite remarkable. However, as you'll see in a little while, the Australian market did outperform. And no surprise there because there was great, great value. In regards to the currency, you know, despite the fact that the dollar had dipped just prior to last year's event, I went on the record to say that I thought it was in its natural range of 70 to 75 cents. I think, still believe that. And factually, it came in with a little bit of an oversurge to up to 79 cents before coming back to normal and now sitting in that 70 to 75 cents range as predicted. Interest rates was probably the easy one. We didn't think the RBA would put their rates up and they didn't. That's probably still the case. You know, we're not likely to see anything until we are on the other side of COVID. So that was a pretty simple one to get right. And then the Australian property market, which again, there was a fair bit of speculation, a fair bit of concern. We were very confident. We said, you know, it was going to be a good year. In fact, my quote there at the bottom was time to make a move on your property. And that was extremely apt. We saw double digit growth across Australia. So wherever you bought, you would have done very, very well in the market. So congratulations if you took advantage and got your property. But we'll be discussing, is it too late later on? Should you still keep going? There's still so much more to consider in the year. So overall, can't really go much better than pretty much everything right, except for the fact we thought the US market might correct. I think you'll be happy that I didn't get that one 100% right, but keep an eye on it. Let's get straight into it. And I want to obviously start with COVID because it's been the dominant factor. And if we have a look at a recap of where we are at with COVID on a global basis, I put this up last year and I've kept last year's ranking from the December 20 seminar. And you can see pretty much everybody stayed in main position. The USA is still the number one country you know that has been affected the most by COVID. you know worldwide though incredibly we have still got 500,000 cases a day being re recorded now having said that the world is now getting more relaxed with COVID. 
Not like that here in Australia where I'm still hiding out in Perth, but the world is generally saying, look, it's here, we've been through the worst, let's get the vaccine out, let's start opening up. But that's with an incredible 500,000 cases a day. You can see there's currently still 19 million active cases on the planet, 6 million of those in the US alone. You know, uh, that was December, and now we've still got 19,000, 18,700,000 this year. So we're basically at the same level where it hasn't changed month much 12 months on. You know, the US still the dominant force with active cases. That's having a surge as we go through. But you can see total cases around the world since it began was 66 million in December, and it's boomed up to over 200 million cases of COVID recorded since it all began. So it's increased in 12 months. You know, 160 odd million people have now had COVID more than last year. That's phenomenal. Sadly, deaths has gone from 1.5 million deaths to 4.7 million deaths. That's tragic. So that shows the severity of what we've been dealing with ever since COVID dropped on the doorstep around November, December of 2019. You can see there, the USA, as I say, has been the worst affected. India now in second place, you know, but everywhere else is still going pretty strong. Australia has done remarkably well. It's sitting at 113th on the list of impact. You know, it was 95 12 months ago, and it would have been a lot lower down the line had it not been for the recent breakout in you know, Sydney predominantly and now Melbourne in the east coast of Australia. Those two have pushed the numbers up to where we're now at about 1,800 cases a day thanks to the Delta variant. Now, we've still had surprisingly few cases. We've had 20,000 this time last year, you know, and we've now got 28,000 of total cases through Australia. Now, bear in mind, most of those have come from incoming passengers coming back in during the COVID restriction period and catching it from overseas, not necessarily in Australia, but it's still there. Total case load you know, has been 80,000, know, and we've had 1,100 deaths. So that's, again, very tragic, but it's not catastrophic like it has been in many other jurisdictions. But again, if anyone doubts the severity of COVID, you just have to have a quick look at that scorecard to see the massive impact. Over 200 million people impacted, over 4.7 million deaths. That's pretty tragic. But the problem is we're having to move into the next phase, which is acceptance of COVID. We don't have to make it the bogeyman that it's been all the way through. We have to learn to live with it, and we also have to rationalize it a bit. And part of that comes from looking at the alternatives. And you see here, you know, causes of death globally in 2019 overall, the leading case was you know, heart disease with about 9 million deaths in one year. You know, COVID's come in at 4.7. So stroke, you know, also high, you know, and respiratory diseases, which COVID is one of, significant but you can see to give perspective 4.7 would only put it at third on the list of what would normally be causing death in us in the world anyways now a lot of um, argument over what constitutes a COVID death because of course it impacts people that have existing ailments and if they die with existing ailments as a result of also having COVID it is a COVID death so it's going to distort the numbers a bit when we see the 20 and 21 and probably into 22 results. But I'm putting this here not as a point of controversy, but a point of reality. We have to accept that those 4.7 deaths 
over coming up to a 19-month period are significant but relatively low compared to the two biggest killers on the planet, you know, being heart and stroke. You know, that's the sad part. That's the reality. We have to come to terms with it. In terms of what is COVID normal now, well, that's going to be different things to different people. But in my mind, the biggest thing is the fact that we're going to be re-tagged as global citizens into two key categories, not European or American or Australian or this or that. It's going to be vaxxed and unvaxxed. That's literally going to be the categorization everywhere you go. Have you got the vaccine? Yes or no. And that's going to lead to all sorts of issues. And how long do we have to get this vaccine? That's also, to me, a red hot topic. Now, already we're having to talk about boosters, but how long are we going to be having annual boosters, annual injections, updates to our vaccine? It could be literally years, if not decades, until some sort of permanent lasting solution comes into play. In the same breath, we're going to be living with masks and lockdowns to some extent in many places for years. Now, the hope is around the world, including Australia, that once we get up to 80% plus vaccination rates, a lot of restrictions can be removed, such as masks and need for lockdowns. You know, but we're not seeing that necessarily as a consistent policy. What we are seeing now is the importance of economic activity taking precedence over health. During the initial phases of COVID, it was always health first, economy second. But that's now changing tune pretty rapidly. We're also seeing travel start to open up, but in a very, very different way to what we were all expecting. You know, we have no longer got freedom of ease through airports, you know, ease of passenger lines, getting cheap tickets. You know, those days are gone. It's going to be expensive and troublesome to travel. And without your vaccination, it is unlikely that airlines will let you on and governments will let you off at the other end. So you will need your vaccination to travel freely from destination to destination. Now, whether you're a believer or not in vaccinations, this is simple fact. Governments have spent billions of dollars propping up, helping, assisting and covering the cost of COVID. Do you honestly think that after that level of investment, they're going to allow you to put all that at risk by you know, your, your belief structure denying a vaccination? You need to come to terms with that if you haven't been vaccinated, because that's the simple reality. There will not be the freedom to move. Those restrictions are last, likely to last a long, long time. We're now going into what I think is an experimentation phase where we start taking off all the restrictions, getting the vaccination rate up and then seeing what happens. There are no guarantees it's going to contain the rate of spread. There are no guarantees it's going to contain the level of illness and ultimately death but we're going to be seeing if it happens. Logic says the more vaccination, the better off we've got, but time will soon tell. Now, the Australian way is very different to the rest of the world. Australia has been copying a lot of flack lately because it closed its borders, not only to foreigners, but also to Australians. It said you had to get permission to come in and they put strict quotas on that inflow. That inflow has kept Australia predominantly COVID-free almost throughout the entire 18 months with a couple of outbreaks in Melbourne, a few spatterings here and now and again in Queensland and, and Sydney, but in the main, nothing significant until the recent release of the Delta strain into the Sydney and Melbourne communities. That has put big lockdowns. You know, Sydney has been in lockdown since June. They're not likely to come out of that, but it's accelerated the level of vaccination. Australians got very complacent 
with how good things were and had been very slow on their vaccination rate. That has turned around and accelerated very, very rapidly. And the only way out for New South Wales and Victoria at the moment is high vaccination. And let's see how that goes when we get to that point. Now, whether Australia can keep its borders closed, time will tell. The pressure politically, emotionally and financially is overwhelming. So I'm expecting that to be changing. But you have little, little places like Perth, where I've been a refugee for the last 18 months. You know, the Premier here is refusing to go into open border guarantees. He's ready to shut down at any moment, regardless. I think even the other day he came out and said he will still lock down with a 90% vaccination rate if it means he can achieve his mission of zero COVID cases. Now, that's very impractical, unlikely to be able to achieve. And it reminds me of the old story of the finger in the dike when I was a kid. It's just not gonna happen. You can't hold the water back, not that. This is a global pandemic. The sooner they understand that, the better. The rest of Australia and the federal government has figured that out. The state governments are still uh, tussling with each other, but we'll see what happens. The Australian way has been great during the, the pandemic, but it's not long lasting. And the one thing a lot of Australians forget is that the whole point of the lockdown was to buy time until the vaccine was ready so that we could all get vaccinated and be safer. That time has arrived, yet they still want to go on with lockdowns. Can't be done, can't be maintained, and isn't safe or healthy, as they found out in Sydney and Melbourne in recent times. So the Australian way has been great to an extent, but it was never for permanent right way. And now the vaccination is the only solution. In regards to money, COVID doesn't seem to have hurt too much. You know, it's still raining money like nothing on earth around the world. It doesn't seem to be making sense as to how that can be. This has been the worst pandemic almost you know, in, in uh, the last hundred or so years. There's nothing like this, yet somehow money isn't really a problem. You know, valuations on corporations have gone through the roof. You know, Apple is two and a half trillion dollars. Microsoft, two trillion dollars. Companies have hit that trillion dollar phase as if nothing was going on. It's baffling as to how these valuations on companies is being done. It just doesn't you know, have any logic. As a result, when you've got crazy valuations, you can expect massive volatility because someone's opinion on a valuation will differ to the others. It's whoever has the sway at the time. You're also getting the fact that people are being moved so closely in and out of these things that it means they shift from one investment to another you know, looking for the next big thing. And that creates volatility and instability naturally itself. And unbelievably, I do not understand how we've got to the day and age where a loss is good. You know, you're now rewarded for loss with a massive valuation. You know, in my original days as an accountant, if someone was making a loss, that business was worth very, very little. But now companies can lose billions of dollars and they still are worth hundreds of billions. It doesn't make sense to me, but it's the modern way. Now, they talk about, oh, but the potential, and look at the growth trajectory. Well, growth trajectory doesn't mean much if you don't have the financial capability to get to the end of the road. So that worries me. And we've got what I call dreamscapers. People are setting out these incredible dreams and saying, that's okay. We can do anything. We can do what we want. And therefore, those valuations become justified based on the hope, based on the dream, based on a crazy reality at times. But when you're in an environment like that, some of these dreams come true, so they provide validation. But what I do concern most about is the fact that I think fairness that sh should be the cornerstone of everything financial 
has been overtaken by the lure of opportunity. Now, people say, don't worry about the reality. Don't worry about whether it's good or bad. Look what could happen. Look what happened over there. It could happen here. And that concerns me because it doesn't give you clarity of decision. You're always blindsided by possible and probable in many cases that will never, ever come true. So that to me is worrisome that we've now become so aloof with money, so willingness to believe the dreamscapers that we're not seeing the reality. If we look at it from a governmental perspective, governments around the world have obviously had the biggest weight to carry as a result of COVID. And just the weight of their decision making is terrible. I mean, to decide to lock up a city, a country, a state, that's a phenomenal burden to carry for any leader. And they've been able to achieve that. Whether you agree with them or not, they have to make those hard calls. But what we've seen from a financial sense is that they want economic recovery at any price. In Australia alone, over $350 billion worth of direct COVID support programs. You know, globally, billions and trillions of dollars being spent in America, Europe, everywhere to say, okay, how do we get things balanced? How do we keep our economy afloat? There is no end to the spend. So what I call blank check democracy, it's whatever it takes to keep everybody moving forward, you know, which is frightening to me. I don't like this whole thing. Now you see, in doing so, only a few countries have come back into growth from their pre-pandemic growth levels. So GDP is only now in positive from pre-COVID-19 you know, to now in probably four or five main countries. Everybody else is still smaller economy than before COVID started. So they haven't got in it. United Kingdom being one of the worst effective and India being the worst. Australia's done pretty well and is bigger economy today than pre-COVID. So you have to give credit where credit's due and the government are doing that. But the true cost, no one seems to talk about it. You know, should we have spent that amount of money? Should we spend the money that we're going to spend? You know, that seems to be just an automatic yes. No one seems to be doing cross checks, balances, whatever. And that does scare me because if we're just spending for the sake of spending, spending for the ideology, that can get, you know, pretty out of control pretty quickly. And we're all lost in the numbers. They're so huge now that how could you ever fully justify or understand? And no one is going to the detail to say, well, who is getting that and where is it going? And as a result, I think we've got a really long road before governments ever come back to financial normality. And you can see the, the graph there on the bottom is the amount of stimulus, funding, you know, and direct loss of revenues that governments have experienced during COVID. It's significant. It's massively significant. You know, so people don't realize how big a dent it is. That's expressed as a percentage of what GDP was. It's huge money. If you're taking all that of your revenue as a government sense in terms of GDP and putting that back in, you know, it's going to take a long, long time to figure this out. And as a result, I'm worried from a global sense about what I call the deficit disorder. You know, it's arguments about ideology, but debt is debt in, in any language. And if you have a look where we've gone, here is a graph that shows you what is the debt levels of advanced economies, emerging economies, and, you know, and the low-income developing nations. So you can see here that the debt levels have now increased significantly to well past 100% of GDP, pushing 120 on a global basis. You know, and that's true 
for emerging uh, the advanced um, economies. For the emerging ones, they're a bit less because they don't have the borrowing power that the advanced ones do. And then for the, the developing countries, they've still kicked up. Now, the great thing from a government point of view is that they've been doing this increased borrowing at a time when interest rates have been going ever low. So you can see there the actual interest expense being the yellow line through the graph is on the decline. So even though they're borrowing more money, it's costing them less. Now that's been the great justification to say, look, let's just borrow heaps, it's cheap, and let's go for it and fix things. Well, that's all well and good as long as interest rates stay where they are. Or if you can get it remedied before rates start rising and get it paid down before that interest cost creeps up. Because if you've got a large debt, when interest rates move from low to high, you've got big, big problems. And affordability you know, is going to be a big issue. Now, again, it's going to be the people that miss out because something's going to have to give. If the interest cost is going to be spent, then health might have to suffer. Education might have to suffer. So with all the governments not caring about this level of debt and not planning on the reduction, there is a potential risk of massive proportion down the line as interest rates come back to normal. Not only that, but that debt does put people under pressure because if you've got debt, you've got to be beholden to the person who lent you the money. And it begs the question, where did all this come from, this money? You know, who is providing the trillions of dollars and required for governments to do these stimulus packages? I don't know anyone who has a spare few trillion dollars aside. And not only that, I don't know anyone with a few billion or hundreds of millions that would lend it out at literally 0% interest. But if you look at the graph there all the way back to the 1800s, looking at the major events in the world, World War I, World War II, the, the uh, G, uh, uh, global financial crisis, and now what the IMF called the Great Lockdown. It's not the COVID recession, it's the Great Lockdown. You can see debt peaked up now to the highest level it has been since World War II. And we had been on a rapid repayment cycle, you know, right up through to the 70s. And then all of a sudden, culture shifted to go, hey, let's borrow. Ironically, you can see when the government borrows less, interest rates are high. When the government's borrowing high, interest rates are low. Is that just coincidence? Probably not. But where is all this money coming from at these low and cheap rates? It's staggering to believe. But again, with that debt now up at record levels you know, and interest rates low, everyone thinks that's okay. But if we look at the, the graph on the right-hand side, you know, look at the way that wealth is distributed. So this is the top 10% of income, the top 10% of assets. And you can see this is the unfairness in the world today. You can see the US leads the way. The top 10% of the, of the wealth, you know, 20% of that top 10% is the income. So they get 20% of the, the whole country's income goes to the top 10%. But that's not that bad. But the big one is look at the asset value. The wealth is near on 80% of the wealth of that nation is held by the top 10% of the rich. That is crazy, disproportionate disbalance. That does not make sense. And of course, at a time like now, it gets better. Now, even Australia, you know, it's not too bad compared to the US. But if you look there, you've got around about 25% of the income you know, of the nation goes to the top 10%. 
and around about 45% of the wealth of the nation belongs to the top 10%. So that's not too bad compared to the US, but it's still a fairly big distortion. Now, whether you ideologically think that's okay or not, it does you know, raise questions. And again, with morality, is that what we're trying to achieve as a community in the world? And at a time like COVID, should that have got wider or smaller? You know, should there be more help from those wealthier people or not? Hard to know, but it depends where you stand. I suppose if I was a trillionaire, I'd be absolutely opposed to giving up some of my wealth. But if I'm poor, I want someone to help me. Anywhere in the middle is your position. But we look at what has changed a lot in the world. Work. You know, work as we know it has completely been redefined. You know, the home office explosion from lockdowns is unquestionably going to change the way work is done in the office and the need of the office in the future like never before. You know, and this is particularly true when you consider how expensive offices have become. You know, will we ever return to that big corporate massive expense office? I don't know. You know, not all places have allowed everyone to return yet. It's going to be at least probably 12 to 24 months before everyone figures out whether it's the right or wrong thing to do. Now, not only have we got people that can't go down to the office down the street, but what we've now done is we've realized that it doesn't matter if you're even in the same country anymore. So you can do your job from wherever you happen to be as long as you've got an internet connection, a laptop and Zoom. Away you go. You know, I've had that good fortune with myself down in Perth you know, with my all operations being in Singapore. My clients are everywhere in the world. I'm just going crazy on Zoom on a daily basis. And I'm sure many of you are also following suit. We can't have group meetings anymore. We can't have trips away for staff. It's all changed. Will we ever get back to that? I don't know. And for expats, I think it's going to bring a massive rethink because, you know, companies that are expending huge amounts of money to bring people into other countries, you know, and put things through schooling and expensive office and accommodation, that's going to get a rethink because they've now realized that they don't even need to send you on assignment if it's not absolutely necessary. So I think we're going to see expat roles move to borderless, geographically changed, and packages as a result are going to be drastically different. You know, will the same level of benefits be available to people that are reassigned out of country or not? It's going to be very, very interesting to watch that space. Now, high value will always be high value, but flexibility may come in even at the top level. Okay? And as a result, we can now do virtually anything, virtually anywhere with virtual technology. That's what it's all about. There is no need for the physicality anymore. Everyone's happy to do things virtually. It works seamlessly. That's why we built a high-tech world. And those tech options are exciting today. And the rate of, of pace of change and advancement and creation is incredible at the moment. You know, there's a massive appetite to build and do things easier. And that's what COVID has fueled quicker and faster than probably any phase of human exploitation in the past. Now, property has been an incredible result during COVID, not just in Australia, which has had a great year, but globally. You know, markets in Hong Kong still strong, surprisingly. UK, USA, everywhere's done pretty well with property. And that's pretty, you know, not surprising to me because of the fact that it has that sanctuary status. It's the thing that calms us the most. We can physically touch it. It protects us. It surrounds us. It keeps us warm. It keeps us safe. So it's not surprising 
that in a time like COVID, where things are so confusing, so worrying, so potentially devastating, that we return to the safety of an asset like property. But what has changed, we're not turning to it as an asset class, we're turning it to it as a lifestyle class. You know, it's all about where am I going to safely have my family live? And that's been the key focus. In previous times when we've seen stock market crashes, property always did quite well because people said, oh, I want a safer asset. But the asset component is not relevant in the decision now. It's about what do I need for my family to live in now, tomorrow, the next day. That's far more critical than the potential financial benefit that may come through value improvement. It's about having that lifestyle that matters. One of the reasons is because we are stuck more at home. And in the foreseeable future, there's no guarantee we won't still be at home. We don't know when lockdowns will end for good. Could be, like I say, one, two, three, four years. You know, we'll be there working from home, living with our spouse, our partners, our kids, at the same place for more and more hours. So you want a bit more separation. You need more rooms. You need to be able to you know, say, kids, that's your area. Please don't bother me. All these things become important because they're forced upon us. We have to do it. And of course, we're not getting the chance to travel out and enjoy that. So as a result, we're more worried about having our home as our vacation spot, a forced vacation in some cases, than we are about where will we go on the next vacation because that's only just starting to come in as an opportunity and thing. It is now a whole private refuge, our home. It's never been more important and we've relearned the importance of it. And that's what's been driving the safety, the growth and the activity in property markets world round. Not investors, but genuine owner occupiers. And Australia is no exception to that rule. Now, moving into stock markets, let's have a look now how things have been going and what we're looking for our predictions for next year. Okay, with stock markets, you know, we've had a crazy year, but you've got to think to yourself to start off, how did some sectors actually survive? When you think about it, we've had airlines that can't get much in the air. We've had hotels that can't get too many people come and stay. We've seen you know, absolute adaptability, you know, ingenuity to survive. So you've got to take your hat off to the most impacted industries like education, you know, tourism, you know, aviation. You know, these have really, really taken the first line of heavy um, blunt force from the COVID. And they've managed in Maine to survive. Now, the big businesses have always already had the financial you know, power to survive this. But the one that's always worried me is the small businesses. Thankfully, many governments have stepped in to help them, but they are still the ones struggling the most. And they must be looking forward to people starting to be able to commute a bit more. So the quicker that happens, the better off they'll be. I'm generally concerned whether I'll be going and doing traveling and all my favorite places will still be there. My fingers are crossed, I'm hopeful they are, because it hasn't been an easy run. And I mentioned earlier, values have gone crazy. We've just seen, you know, even uh, during the midst of this, Airbnb, which I'm a huge fan of news of, it, it did its public listing during this phase and went on a double what was expected. Now, of all the businesses in the world to list during a COVID pandemic crisis when you can't travel, you would have thought Airbnb would be marked down, but no. It was marked up. And that's the thing. We don't have any logic as to what's happening, but it's happening in huge waves and huge force in huge numbers. And somehow it just all keeps going. 
You know, we still have issues in terms of what's going to recover fast. You know, the airline industry, is it too late or too early to get into that? The hospitality, the accommodation industry, these are really tough questions to ask at this point in time. But I think you'd be brave to get in too quickly because of the fact that we don't know how long the recovery period could be and we don't know how deep the wounds will be that need healing before they can move into prosperity again. You know, even with an airline like Qantas, they're losing a couple of billion dollars. How many years of profit before they've patched that hole and recovered to their previous level. Now, it is a lower stock price right now, but are you willing to take the punt? And well, we're still not sure about international travel, etc. So again, you've got to be brave if you want to take those recovery lines, but just always remember, fortune follows the brave. So if you are going to be brave, do your research, check it out, and make sure you make an informed decision because it could be lucrative. You know, those industry rebuilds of aviation, etc. it's going to take the government to come in, not just with support, but more importantly, with policy and particularly policy of movement. That's going to be far more important than any level of you know, support package or financial compensation. If they can't get customers back, any amount of support will just be wasteful. So that's going to be the key issue. The government's now got the clock ticking to get movement back into play. And have they got the financial means to do so? I mentioned Qantas earlier, it's lost billions, but it's got billions in reserve. You know, as long as they've got that, they're fine. So managing that cash flow, managing that capital is going to be the skill of the current age. How they do that to get back to profit is the real test. What I've been watching lately in the stock market is a little bit of over manipulation. I keep watching companies that are doing extremely well because even with COVID, some companies are reporting record profits, as you'll see. But I'm watching it, and often companies are reporting profits of terrific amounts, and yet the next day, the, prof the price of the share goes down by not a little bit, but sometimes a lot. You know, we've, you know, we've seen that on a regular basis, and that's because, I think, of too much back-end manipulation. You know, too much of, oh, we thought they'd do better, even though it was often a record profit. So you've got to be careful about what's going on. There's not enough truth in the market for my liking right now and not enough regulation because the government is busy looking after what they have to do with COVID. And as a result, I just remind you every single year, particularly at a time like now when I think markets might be a little bit overheated, make sure you feel comfortable with the value of your acquisitions. Whatever you're buying, understand it, research it, make sure you're comfortable with its value. If you do that, there's safety in, in the thought. Number one, even if you're wrong, you'll be happy because you gave it thought and made the right decision. You didn't just guess. But if you get it right, the profit can flow. Let's have a look at how the stock market went over the last year. And you can see, surprisingly, 12 months, it went over almost 30% in Australia and the US. That's phenomenal. So the green line being the Australian market, the blue line being you know, the US and the purple line being the FTSE in the UK. You know, terrific growth. But you can see it is pretty volatile. There are some peaks and troughs there. There's movement, you know, but overall we've seen, you know, that positive trend moving forward. Now that's quite surprising given that we're still right in the midst of all this, particularly in the US where you saw those numbers are phenomenally high still with caseload and daily cases. Huge, but some it doesn't matter to the stock market. We'll see what goes on. You know, concerning, but this can't seem to stop at the moment. It's a real bull market. 
If we have a look at, as I usually do, you know, with these same companies, again, I'm not giving recommendation with these. I've just used these as the same reference point in every event. And you can see here, the amazing thing to me is, you know, we've just had the world's biggest pandemic for 100 years. We've got issues, we've got economic you know, pressures, we've got you know, infrastructure problems, we've got movement restrictions, we've got everything going against almost every business. Yet somehow you look at that list and pretty much everybody's profit went up except somehow Pfizer. That doesn't seem to make sense. Pfizer went from a 16 to a 7. How can that be? I think that's because they're so generous in giving out so many vaccines apparently. But you can see there, you know, BHPs, profit up, HSBCs. Now, their profit went down thanks to write-downs. But you can see, you know, all up, Bank of America down a bit, but still $16 billion profit. They're in huge numbers. How do you make that sort of money even in a global pandemic? And you see the stock price as a result, you know, over on the right-hand side, you've got BHP up 11%, HSBC, its profit went down, its share price went up 22%. Bank of America, its profit almost went down by 40%, its share price went up 60%. These are strange numbers. CBA you know, went up a little bit of profit, 50% increase in the share price. Microsoft up another 40%. Wow. I hope you've been buying those every year when we talk, because if you have, you'd almost be ready to retire. And then Coca-Cola, it's still gone up 11%. So everything just on that comparative list has done pretty well. And they're not even the best performers. But again, you can see no matter what happens in the world, the stock markets have the capacity to adapt and expand if that's where the market wants to go. One of the key reasons for that is there's an enormous amount of capital that's flowing into those stock markets all the time from pension funds, hedge funds, managed investment funds. The amount of capital available is huge in the world right now. And it has to go somewhere and it has to return a result because if it doesn't return a result, the people that gave it will pull it away. So the, the pressure to perform is huge. If we look at the, the uh, key indexes, the Dow Jones was up 24.7% year on year. And again, we snapshot this on the 9th of September every year. And you see the All Ordinaries as expected to outperform 26.4, pipped it at the post. Now I'm quite surprised that the Dow Jones did that well, but most of it was you know, post last year's event. And the FTSE had a great year at 16.7, even though they've been massively you know, impacted by COVID and have had some of the longest restrictions out of almost every country on the planet. So you can see, despite what might be going on, money doesn't seem to care. And money somehow makes money all the time. Hence why that rich get richer philosophy. Hence why that 10% of the wealth you know, 10% of the rich hold 80% of the wealth. It doesn't make sense in the US. But this is why, because the wealth have the money deployed and invested and find a way for it to go up in value. Whether it's real or not, it doesn't matter. These are locked in. They cash out their profits, I'm sure, and therefore that wealth becomes real. Again, just as a reference point, let's look at Bitcoin. You know, and you know, last year I was saying that speculators had come back and last year I was flabbergasted that Bitcoin, which again I remind you is officially worth nothing, had hit a market capitalization last December of 360 billion. And I said, how can you value anything if nothing which Bitcoin is, is worth 360 billion? Well, just to show you how much nothing became worth over the course of the year, there's Bitcoin going from a 360 market cap in December and it hit $1.18 trillion value in April. 
So that's almost tripled in value in the course of less than four months. That is unbelievable. But it happened. So it can't be unbelievable. It was factual. And this is the crazy thing. How can you ever say that nothing is possible or that that matters or that's right if anything can happen? And Bitcoin always proves the point because it's factually nothing. It fell from 1.18 trillion to a low of 559 just three months later. But look, it's already recovered back to almost a trillion dollars as recently as this week. So how does that happen? How does something this volatile go up and down? Very simple. Volume. There's almost 70 million punters with Bitcoin wallets in the system. So if you can get millions of people to believe the same story at the same time, you can do anything financially. And that's what it's all about. Now, to finish off with the stock market, where do I think the next year's stock market goes? Well, I still think there's very good value. I think we're going into recovery mode. So if we're ever going to have logical reason for a good year on the stock market, this should be it. Because we're now seeing things allegedly normalize. We're seeing markets open up, borders open up, trade open up. You know, things are getting resettled. You know, the vaccinations are in play and allowing people to get back to a level of normality. So I would think that my prediction for the stock market is a reasonable year. Now, I'm not sure it'll be a double-digit growth year. So I'm expecting to have a modest and reasonable growth year because we've had too many good ones. And I think we've already pre-priced some of the recovery there. So prediction number one, you know, stock markets to be reasonable. Let's have a look at the Australian dollar. Now, the Australian dollar, you can see there, you know, has had a little bit of a, an overcorrection in my mind. I'm a strong believer it's always been in the 70, 75 cents natural range. And we see it move through that up to as high as 79 there for a little while. You know, everyone was pretty worried. And again, we go back just to the previous year and it was touching 60 cents Aussie to the US. That's pretty low. But we see we got all the way back to 79 and then it's now recorrected and it's back in that 70 to 75 cent range, which I do believe is the natural range. So I'm going to stay with my prediction for the currency to 70, 75 cents. I still believe that to be what I think is a comfortable range. And the reason I believe that is Australia still is one of the strongest economies in the world and therefore deserves to have a reasonably priced currency. If you look at the GDP growth, we did technically go into recession for one quarter and then bounce back out. And not only bounce, look, we've come back with an 8% plus GDP growth year on year now. Now, don't get excited about that. That's not the new norm. It's because the GDP is coming off the low base of the low point 12 months ago. So don't expect it to be 8% now going forward. It'll come back towards the normality of the threes and fours. But that's still very good numbers in a very weird world. But importantly, it's what makes up that growth. And to me, you can see the primary driver of GDP growth is not government spending. It's not mining activity. It's not business activity. It's good old fashioned consumer consumption. It's you, me and Mr. and Mrs. Everybody going out and just living a normal life, buying food, buying groceries, driving our cars, changing things over, you know, moving around. And I've said for over two decades now, that's all that's required. You know, there's enough activity from normal living to stimulate growth. And proof in point, 
is that consumption driver is literally 6% GDP growth by itself this year. Again, kicks back quickly because a lot of people were in lockdown, they couldn't spend much, but that shows that it's still underlying strength. It's not stimulus, it's just normal activity. And that's why I'm comfortable and confident in the Australian market and economy staying where it is and justifying a good currency level. If we look at interest rates, unbelievably happy here. You know, they've stayed low for the last 12 months. They're unlikely to go up. You know, we're sitting at an official rate of 0.1%. The RBA has on record for now the last 18 months or so to say they did not expect to put interest rates up for two to three years and they've held that line. We basically now just get a formal, you know, formality of an announcement. Interest rates are the same. But there's no room to go down, but there's room to go up. But if we look at global ones, you know, policy interest rates around the world, you can see, you know, some of them are in negative interest rates. That's phenomenal. Who would have thought that could ever happen? But it is going on now. Now, one of the things that you need to be mindful of is we haven't had a rate rise for a long, long time now, since November 2010. And it's the old saying, what goes you know, up must come down. What goes down also has to go up. So I still believe, and I'm holding my line here, that the next shift is up. I can say that because there's no possibility of any further down, to be honest. But the economy is strong. And one of the things that the RBA does look for is CPI, Consumer Price Index. And you see in that bottom graph, that's now above their happy range. They like it to be in that 2 to 3% range. It's now pushing up way past that. So things are getting more expensive because of that consumer activity, because of the fact that goods are getting up because it's harder with you know, supply chains. So that's going to give pressure on the RBA to look at bringing interest rates up sooner. One of the key drivers of CPI, house prices. House prices, as you'll see soon, are doing extremely well. You know, a lot of people blame interest rates for that. I'm not in that basket myself, but it's certainly a factor. And one of the ways they can cool the house market is to lift interest rates, and that therefore has a dampening effect. So expect interest rates to go up in the not distant future. You know, they said that they won't put them up, but I think they're going to be under pressure to do so from a financial sense, with that CPI and with those growth numbers coming better than expected. The only thing that might have bought us time is the fact that the Delta COVID virus got out into Sydney and Melbourne over the last three to four months, and it's still probably a month or two months away from being able to come back to a level of normality. You know, we don't want them, but they're going to be absolutely necessary to see those rises. Now, as a result, you really, really, really should be considering if you've got debt in Australia, looking at fixed interest rates. You know, if you fix your rate, you will not be concerned with any rate movement in the next six, 12 months or up to five years. So if you're happy with your interest rate right now, you should seriously look at getting it reviewed and consider a fixed rate. So my prediction here is interest rates should stay flat for, I believe, at least the next six months, and then we're going to have to start seeing, you know, logic-driven small increments depending on the strength of the economy. But to give you an idea of how powerful those fixed rates are, here's a quick chart for you, and you can see the variable owner-occupier rate in Australia is from around about 2.29, and indeed there is even specials underneath that from time to time. You know, as long as you go principal and interest these days, you get a little bit cheaper than if you're an investor or if you go interest only. 
So there's a small investor premium. There's a large interest-only premium. 2.29 is an occupier principal and interest. 2.89 if you go interest-only. So you're far better off taking that lower cost than going interest-only. The only time you should look at interest-only is if you can't sustain the principal repayment through your cash flow. You know, but you've got to be careful because the banks may be reluctant to lend you there. But definitely, you want to be taking advantage of that principal and interest, get some equity in your property, get some debt reduction, it's there. But if you look there, the, the three-year fixed rate is 1.89. That's phenomenal. So that tells you that interest rates are likely to stay low for the next one to three years and that the banks are willing to lock you in at that rate and therefore you know, make that profit on you. If you want certainty for that period, it's worth it. Now, the five-year rate there at 2.49, that's worth considering. But you're paying 0.6% more over the first three years than if you had fixed it for three. So that's 1.8. And you've got two years that you wouldn't be fixed. So you're hoping that for that last two years, if you took a three-year instead of a five-year, that you know 1.8 divided by 2.9 that interest rates are 0.9% or less than your three-year fixed rate. If that's the case, you got it right and you save money. If interest rates are higher than 0.9 more than the three-year rate, then you would have been cheaper to go a five-year rate. It's a little bit of a lucky dip. It's a tough call. But you pick what you're comfortable with and what you like to have a certainty. And certainly over the long haul, it is certainly worth considering. Interestingly, you'll see owner-occupier rates for... Um, interest-only repayments are much higher than any of the other rates. And the reason is the banks are being very much discouraged by the government and internal policymakers to give interest-only on owner-occupier homes. They don't mind on investor because it's a disposable asset, but a home needs to be kept, and therefore they're reluctant to give you incentive to go interest-only on your home, but they don't mind it on an investment property. So you definitely, as an owner-occupier, want to go for the cheap principal and interest reduction. Now, I've spent most of my career telling people to go interest-only, 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 because a principal reduction is not a tax deduction. But for most of my career, the interest-only and the principal interest interest rate was the same. So there was no financial impact either way. Now, the principal and interest repayment is significantly cheaper at an interest rate cost than the interest-only. So you should always go for the least cost, most efficient, and best for your finances. And that now is pushing everybody towards principal and interest if you can afford it. Let's have a look at you know, one of my favorite graphs, which is the, the world's most um, livable. You know, so we've got this year, the livable scale, scale came back in. We didn't show it last year because they didn't do it. So the Economic Intelligence Unit usually does this every year, but you'll see 2020 was missing because of COVID. And you see quite a bit of upheaval. New Zealand shot to the top with Auckland and Wellington jumping into the top four. Auckland coming from 12th to 1st and Wellington going from 25th to 4th. That's a massive leap. Now, again, that's a lot to do with the fact that they managed COVID very well initially. They're now dealing with some issues, but their remoteness, their isolation, their ability to lock down, you know, certainly helped them, as it did Australia. And you see now Australia is virtually everyone in. Sydney at number 11 is the only one out the top 10. And Melbourne, which has traditionally been first or second, slipped all the way back to nine due to the Melbourne having an extended lockdown for a large portion 
of this assessment period. Now, again, whether they can sneak up, up the ranks, we'll see. But Perth has jumped from 14 to 6 as a result of that very heavy-handed approach of Premier McGowan. Now, whether that you know, helps in next year's rankings where it might be the last place on the planet to open up for travel and things like that, who knows? But one of the key elements in this test is entertainment and events and all these things. And Perth has had no disruption to that whatsoever because of the isolation in particular and the strength of you know, McGowan's conviction in not letting any cases come. We have lockdowns in Perth if there is literally one reported case. You know, we'll get two, three-day lockdowns. And that is on record now that he continues that policy even with up to a 90% vaccination rate. You see, this has always been Australia's strength as being dominant in this list. It's good to see it back. It's the reason why Australia continues to attract people wanting to come here. You know, the negative press of the ability to come back, I think that's going to have an impact. But overall, people want to come safe. And if you come from a country that's had massive issues with COVID, massive health concerns, massive you know, deaths, you're going to certainly look at Australia with only 1,800 deaths as a place that you would rather be if it ever happens again. If we look at the population, though, COVID has put that population growth on pause. Australia's traditionally been that 1.4 to 1.8% population growth, but last year it dropped to 0.5%. Now, again, not because people didn't want to come, but because people couldn't come. You know, the government federally and with the you know, support of the state premiers introduced strict caps on who could come into Australia. You know, only a few thousand a week were allowed into Australia, all into two-week isolation, you know, to see if they had COVID, get them healthy before they were allowed to go out into the general populace. That was a key strategy into Australia's success. But a reminder, it was done to buy time for the vaccine, not as an alternative strategy. And that's where it has got confusing. But you can see everywhere did pretty well. And the only one that went backwards was pretty much Victoria. It shrunk you know, significantly from you know, 120,000 know, usually you know, down to almost nothing. So you know, that state has shrunk down massively in expansion. The reason for that, it had a huge student population of which many went home during COVID. And as a result, that place has got big problems in what we call stops. You know, and they're apartments that are small, tall and overpriced. We've been warning people about those for over eight years now, but it really came home to roost during COVID because the people that primarily occupied those smaller apartments that are hard to live in, were students. And that student population in Melbourne had always been massively strong and refreshed every year, but this year they can't come in. Now we're still probably three, six months away from allowing students back in to any grand scale. So it's going to be a long time before that market in, in Victoria recovers. You know, but everywhere else is still creeping up. Now WA, etc., doing nicely in range to what they're usually, but we still had 136,000 more people through COVID. The government had predicted this would drop down to 0.2, but at 0.5, it's still looking pretty good. And I'm hoping that we're not that far away from opening up those quotas, getting more people back, both Australians and migrants, and getting that population back to its more normal levels, which is great for the economy overall. But importantly, the economy has been doing well despite this lowering. The property market has been doing well despite this lowering. 
So imagine what's going to happen when these levels go back from the 136,000 increase back towards those 300, 350, $400,000 levels. The surge in economic activity is going to be significant and profound. Okay? To show you the sub look of those though, we have a look at New South Wales, which did grow its population, but you can see there, you know, they had a lot of babies being born. So that's net increase, so births after deaths. But you can see the dark blue line is net interstate migration. A lot of people have sold up in New South Wales and gone to other states. And you can see Queensland being the key benefactor because it's so close and the northern weather and all these sorts of things. And same in Victoria. You see, Victoria had good births, but you know it had negative movement into other states. But you can see the yellow line was net overseas migration. Now, Sydney increased its net overseas migration because there was an influx of expatriates came back, and most expatriates come from New South Wales. So it's only natural to see that kick up nicely. But you can see there, you know, Victoria had a net negative impact from overseas migration because that's all the students that went home as the mess was starting to you know, hit the fan. So you can see there, that's an interesting impact. Queensland being the primary benefactor, and then WA had good natural increases, and it had net overseas migration. A lot of expats did come back, but not as many as New South Wales, but a significant amount to strengthen that economy and build it. Everywhere else was pretty much flatlining, but Queensland, good births, an incredible amount of additional people coming up from Sydney and Melbourne. Now, where that's massively important to note is that most of those people are selling their homes. So when they sell in Sydney or Melbourne, they're getting substantial sums of money, far more than is required to buy a better home in Queensland. So you're now seeing that shift of money from those bigger states of Sydney, you know, Melbourne, New South Wales, Victoria, into Queensland, which has always happened traditionally, but is going to be stronger at this point in time than ever before, and probably will have a lasting effect, you know, greater than we've ever experienced. So it's important to remember that as we'll discuss. In regards to the property market overall, we've seen that what is the primary driver in the market right now is owner-occupier. It's not an investor-driven search. It's absolute owner-occupiers looking for somewhere to live better than they used to have to survive any future COVID lockdowns or issues and recognizing that if this is the world, let's have a better lifestyle. And that's what the focus of attention is. We're also seeing the fact that a lot of the owner-occupier activity is because it's now, thanks to those interest rates, cheaper to own a property than it is to rent. So many people have been putting off the decision to own, you know, waiting, waiting, waiting and spending the money on holidays. They flipped around and started owner-occupying. Have you missed the boat? I don't think so. I think we're at the beginning of this push, not the end. And a lot of that is because it's not boom or bust mentality. This is genuine demand with lack of supply, you know, with a market that one of the largest stimulation factors being population growth is at record low levels. So to me, I don't think we're anywhere close to where it's going, but you have to be careful of what you're buying. Risk is genuinely in the market. There is no doubt about it. You do not want to buy for the sake of buying. You're going to have to buy something that is really, really nice at a price that you're going to have to pay more than you're willing to pay 
but you've got strength in the quality of that asset. But if you just go, that'll do, and I'll pay a crazy price for that, I'm not sure you'll be happy with that decision later on. Whatever you buy, recognize that there's risk, and the single best way to mitigate risk is through quality. Buy the best property you can afford, whether it's location, size, view, features, whatever it is, get the best property you can afford and then enjoy it. That's the key. You know, incredibly, investors are still sitting on the sidelines. One of the key reasons for that is just natural human nature. You know, everybody knows that there's opportunity to be made, but everybody is still saying, well, ha have I waited too long? Is it too late to buy? Will it come back? And let's face it, when you're buying a property, particularly if it's for investment, you want to pay the least you can. So when prices are rising, you're not inclined to jump in. You're hoping that they calm down or indeed fall. But it's unlikely that's the case because it's not investor-driven movement in the market. It's owner-occupier genuine demand that's pushing prices. So if you want to be an investor, you better find your place in there and nuzzle your way in. And be ever mindful that migration is on pause. And I'm warning you, that is only likely to be for the next six months max, maybe 12 at a push as it trickles back in. But when that opens up, expect a flood of not just people, but capital. And they're going to want to live in a lovely house and start a lovely life. So get ready for that. It's coming. Confidence is not dwindling. It's still growing in the marketplace. And of course, as these results get good, so too does confidence. Oh, if it's going to go up, I might as well get in so I don't lose out and pay more tomorrow. It's just you know, nervousness at price points, but the inevitable reality of requirement is still there because of the genuine market. And what you do need to do is if you've been lucky enough to be an owner for the last 5, 10, 15 years, you would have been benefiting from hopefully improvement in your purchase price. You've now got equity built in your property. Now, you should look to activate that equity and use that to go buy your next investment property, your next home. Look at what you can do to see if you can take advantage of the natural uplift and benefit further from releasing that equity for further acquisition. And just always be mindful that the key decision maker at the moment, and usually always, is lifestyle. So pick a property that is extremely livable, is extremely well located, and the best value you can get for your budget. One of the things that you do want to be very mindful of is what I call the release and relocate bonus. And that's, as I say, particularly in New South Wales and Victoria, people selling their properties in good quality, high value suburbs, and then relocating particularly to Queensland. So that bonus in Queensland is going to be an uplift in prices because not only are they coming with cash and intent, but for them, everything in the Queensland market is unbelievably cheap. And again, that emphasizes my point on quality. Those people with money are not going to buy second-rate property. They're not going to buy other people's mistakes. They're going to want the best quality in the best suburbs, and they've got the cash to win at the auction. If you want to be in that market, then they will take you up you know, with the ride to more profit. And that's what you want to be doing. Again, genuine buyers looking for genuine homes to live in and upgrading their lifestyle because they can afford to. So get in and get your share. And that's what you have to do if you want to really make good money. 
is follow the money. Where are those people buying? Where are the expats buying in Sydney? Where is the money in Sydney getting its next home? What's going up with upgrades in Perth? Look at where the money's going because the money will take profit with it. It'll do improvement of suburbs, regeneration. It'll do renovation to make an old area look good and new. It'll do all sorts of wonderful things that usually end up in higher than average profit. And that's what you want to do. Enjoy the lifestyle, get a better area, maximize your budget, and you'll be fine if you make the right choice on the right property. Interest rates are fantastic, but they're not essential. So I'm not one of these people that'll say to you, oh, interest rates driving the bubble. If you look at it, I'll show you soon. The, the lending ratios are not getting any higher. The banks are not handing it out like lollies. They're going through rigorous assessment processes. So yes, interest rates will impact, but you'd be surprised how many people have got low debt, no debt positions now, particularly when they've sold up in somewhere like Sydney and gone to Queensland. So don't think interest rates are the driver. They're certainly an enabler. They're certainly a great assistance but they're not gonna get you over the line and push prices up any more than they would have if someone didn't have the money. If you look at where everywhere is, I've just updated this and we pretty much got all these on track. Darwin I had in the red last year, it's had a good year and I still think it's opportunity, but you've gotta be very careful. Sydney I had just on the tip of the area of best opportunity and we picked that one perfectly as you'll see with the stats. Perth is doing nicely, but still has not yet really got its legs going. Brisbane and Melbourne are doing phenomenally well, and Adelaide's having a great year as well. But I will preface, particularly with Melbourne, that you don't want to be buying these small apartments. Now, Sydney as well as, but Melbourne in particular, there is a glut and oversupply and vacancy factor through the roof in apartments that are unlivable, that were previously student or tourism. You do not want to be buying someone else's problem at any price. If it's not a good sized apartment in a good location, don't touch it. But if you're picking up a bargain on a quality apartment, go for it. You know? But make sure it's livable, make sure it's sized right, make sure it's well located. Houses, townhouses, similar rules apply. It's just usually a lot easier to achieve. But you can see everywhere in Australia at the moment, is looking really good from a buying perspective. And to show you the numbers, here they are. You can see just in the last quarter, 6.7% growth on the back of a 5.4 prior. Year on year, over 16% growth on the average for Australia. And you see Sydney, Melbourne, everywhere, double digit growth. So if you had listened to this event last year and we said, hey, go get yours, I'm hoping you're looking at here going, we got mine, Steve, thank you. Because what a terrific result. Now, it wasn't by accident, it wasn't by fluke, it wasn't by speculation. This was genuine demand, and that is not looking like, you know, leveling off anytime soon. We literally take calls from clients almost every day saying, I've missed out, I've missed out, I've missed out. The level of frustration in buyers right now is huge, and hence, they know they have to meet the market. If the buyer is, is there and keeps missing out, when a seller is there within cooey a reasonable price, that buyer is going to act once he's eventually got fatigue from missing out too often. And this is, you know, certainly fueling the prices. But I remind people all the time, Australia still is the most affordable luxury property market in the world. So these are not crazy big prices. And you see, this is the first time for a number of years since 2017 that we had double digit growth. But look, it's the first time we've had it in every state. So this is as much a recovery and a readjustment 
rather than a speculative push with volatility and risk. So I'm comfortable that this is just taking us right to a sensible price point rather than putting it into a dangerous price point. You can see when we look at the numbers from the Real Estate Institute, they're similar, but they're Sydney 23% year on year. But if you look at the five-year average, it's only 6.6. The 10-year, 8, and the 15-year, 6.8. So we're not seeing a crazy growth over a prolonged period of time. It's a reaction to a change in thinking. I want a nice home where I want it at a price I can afford it. And that's what you're seeing. You know, there is genuine buyers with capacity in the market, both from coming from overseas and more importantly, from within Australia. Most of the buyers, by a long, long way, are upgrading from within Australia. It's not foreigners, it's not expats that are changing the market massively, it's the local domestic market. And hence why we're getting a surge now, but not over a prolonged period of time. And you see, Perth for the first time is nice and profitable 8%. It was in negative for the last five years. So this is long overdue as we've been suggesting would happen. And we're very happy that it's come about, you know, and that's still, I think, good opportunity. It's still underperforming. But you see the long-term averages are there. I think I messed up my Brisbane number, so please apologize for that, I'll fix that. And we'll see what happens there. It's a nice result all around Australia. Now this to me is not a speculative shift. This is a natural and proper adjustment. And as a result, for my prediction for next year is I think we're going to have another good year in the Australian property market, but I am going to suggest that it will not be double digit, that it should temper back to sub 10% growth. You know, hopefully in the range of six to eight, which is sensible and moderate. Now, two reasons for that. The market will naturally readjust. And two, it's hard to get double digit on top of double digit growth. You know, the amount of quantum of growth is going to be similar, but on a bigger base, so therefore a smaller percentage return. So we'll see what happens in that regard. And then if you look at the adjustment to the average, there's Sydney. It's actually gone the opposite direction to what I expected. I thought it would come back to be closer to the average, but it's actually increased its premium on the average price from 48 to 54%, the highest it's been in years. And that just shows the power of the active market, both expatriates and locals, upgrading, improving. Now, some of that could well be because a lot of these homes that are being sold now have been going under you know, significant renovation. So that can also push prices up. But it's because people want where they want. And in Sydney in particular, the supply is incredibly tight. Very few people selling, lots of people wanting to buy. No surprise to see a surge, no surprise to see a premium. Melbourne is about where it should be. And you can see Perth to me at 44% discount to the national average where it's got the highest um, weekly earnings makes no sense. But again, you know, the East Coasters are now got a lot of resentment for Perth because it's not letting them in. You know, so that's going to be an issue. And whether McGowan can get that goodwill back, that'll be time to see. But overall, everywhere is still very good value in Australia if you get quality. And that really is the key. So a strong year looking forward. You know, one of the key reasons I want to point out to you why I believe that is owner occupation rates. You can see here we've traditionally been up at around about that 70 odd percent owner occupation rate. But over the years, it's been diminishing down. But you know, in the last year or two, with interest rates being so good value, it now is cheaper to own than rent, as I mentioned earlier. 
You know, what that's meant is that for a lot of people who had the capacity to own but chose for lifestyle reasons to enjoy the money rather than commit, now they're going, wow, well, we can still have our enjoyment and it's still cheaper than renting, so why not commit? And as a result, I think you're going to find that the owner-occupier rates, which had been dropping off, are going to slightly turn and then move back up to higher than they have been for quite a while. I think we're going to go at around about a bottom out of about the 62% and they're going to sneak back up to 65, 66 very, very fast over an 18-month to 24-month period. That's the key driver of price points. That's what's making things happen. And that's the person you're competing with, not an investor. You're competing with someone who wants to live in that house as much as you do. So, you know, that's a tougher person to you know, beat out at an auction than an investor who's just looking at return. So get your pencil out, sharpen it up, and go to the auction and get your quality property at the price you want. If you look at the rental market, it further validates it. And you see across Australia, everywhere except Melbourne, the vacancy rate is 3% or less. Now, Melbourne has boomed out to 6.3% vacancy. Why? Because of that student you know, leaving population. You know, they've all left. The places are too small. They're unlivable. Nobody wants to live there by choice. And as a result, it's seriously hard to get a tenant because the population is not increasing. There's no new person to replace the last person. So expect that to be the case for quite a while. Now, if you look at there in Sydney, 3%. It was 4% last year. So that market's tightening you know, rapidly. Brisbane has gone down to a 1.3% vacancy from 2.6 the year before. Perth is at 1%. Adelaide, 0.7%. Canberra, 07 These are crazy low numbers. And the thing is, there's not much supply coming in. And a lot of the rental property is now being taken out by an owner-occupier buying it. So every time a property gets sold to an owner-occupier, it's no longer available for rent. And it further tightens up the vacancy. You know, so there's a double-edged sword here. It's, it's getting hit from both sides. Now you see in terms of rent increases, Sydney's gone up 6% you know, on average. You know, Perth, 20% increase. Adelaide, 11% increase. Now some of that is because of the tightness of the market. Some of it is because no one could get any rent rises and had to give discounts during the bad period and also during COVID. So we're seeing a kickback to normality. But you know, it's still affordable, just rewarding the investor you know, for holding on during those tough times. You know, and again, when he's got the advantage of both increased rent and lower interest, then that certainly takes the pressure off the investor and helps him because he's also getting uptick in his property value. So it's the holy trifecta from a property investment point of view. You really want to be in the market if you can. Why I'm also comfortable, if you look here, a lot of people worry that Australia borrowing too much. It's fueled by growth. Well, that's not the case. You know, our net wealth is going up. Our, our commitments for housing are on the rise, but again, owner-occupied, you know, but not disproportionate. You can see in terms of the ratio of debt to, to income, it's actually tapering off. So the amount of debt in relation to income is getting lower, not higher. So we're not seeing madness in the market. The bank's lending policies are sensible and require you to properly prove you can afford it. But you can see the big thing there is, is on the bottom right, household wealth is improving substantially, not just from property, but from all aspects. And then on the bottom left, this is the key to me. You can see there's a drop off now in approvals. There's not as much building approval coming through to satisfy the market. 
Now, luckily, that's at a time when that migration is low. But this has a lag effect. If those building approvals aren't getting through, that property is what would normally be delivered in two, three, four years' time. If it's not going to be approved now, it's not going to be available in two, three, or four years' time when migration normalizes and people start coming in, when people are selling and looking for their next home. So there's a big problem brewing here, which is bad if you are waiting to buy. It's fantastic if you've already bought. So these are factual elements that are keeping that market very, very strong in a real sense, not in a wish, not in a hope, not in a speculator's dream, but in a real sense. And that's why I'm so confident with the Australian property market and sure that we're gonna have a very good year, not as good as last year, which was phenomenal, but a good year of that six to 8% almost across board in every state. But pick Queensland to be the star with all that money flowing from the lower states. Pick WA to hopefully have some recovery above average because it's been waiting a long time for that. And the economy there is very strong due to the strict you know, restrictions on the border. Finishing off, I hope that's brought to your attention some of the key elements that are affecting us in this new world post-COVID. And indeed, it's going to be an incredible rise to where we go from here. But some of the key things that we need to consider is obviously get your vaccine. You know, I cannot stress the importance. Everybody else is jumping on. The world is moving towards 80 plus percent, you know, but we should be going to 90s and 100s. If we get to 90s and 100s, hopefully we can eradicate this. You know, but if we don't, then we're going to be all getting booster shots every year. And this is going to be going on in perpetuity. The sooner we all recognize that it's a necessary evil and jump on board, the better we are. You know, if you don't get that vaccination, you don't need me to tell you it's in every place you look. You're not going to get into restaurants. You're not going to get onto airplanes. You're not going to be able to cross into this. You might not be able to go to events. There's so many things that are going to not be available to you if you're unvaccinated. So go get one. You know, the community is important. Just think of them first. You'll come second. If the community is strong, everybody's strong. So please, I urge you to go get it. I'm hopeful that very soon... We won't even be talking about numbers. You know, it's crazy that we report how many cases a day on the news every day, that we're obsessed with the numbers. You know, we shouldn't be worried about that, especially in Australia. We're getting less than 2,000 cases a day. You know, we've got a 25 million population. Yes, it's important. Yes, it's urgent. Yes, we need to monitor it. But sometime in the near future, it shouldn't even be in the news. It's going to just be another disease that we're dealing with, just like everything else. We used to report, you know, how many car accidents. That's not on the news anymore because COVID's taken that, that scorecard. You know, we need to get back to how it is and learn to live with this as soon as possible. You know, the stock market, in particularly in the US, etc., is at crazy high levels. Don't be afraid to take some profits from time to time, especially if they're far more than you imagined. You don't have to sell everything, sell some. Take your profit out, sit it to the side, see what happens. You know, I'm worried that there is potential for correction, but there certainly doesn't seem any signs of the need or likelihood of that at this stage. But just monitor things, because if it seems too good to be true, it may well be. And if you think about it, if we are now at the point where it's as bad as it ever can be, we've had a global pandemic, we've lost 4.7 million people. You know, we've had economies shut down, we've had travel restricted. How much worse could things ever be 
than how it's been for the last 12 to 18 months. And yet here we are, still mainly employed, you know, still mainly living in our houses, still mainly living lives as normal as can be with restriction. You know, yes, there's a lot of people struggling. Yes, there's a lot of government support. Yes, it's not as good as it wants to be. But when you consider what we've been through, what decisions had to be made, rightly or wrongly, and this is where we're at, maybe that's not as bad at all. You know, It's incredible that we've still got the economic capacity and lifestyle capacity for the great majority of the world that it has at this moment. You know, the seriousness of the COVID-19 pandemic and the decisions that have made around it can never be underestimated. But somehow we've come out of here with the stock market at a record level, surprisingly, with jobs primarily intact, with economies already back at pre-GDP COVID levels. That's an incredible result. We cannot ever have foreseen that to have been the case so soon after the original COVID. And as a result, looking at to get to us at this point, if this is as bad as it gets, then the real payoff for all the sacrifice, all the spend, all the worry, all the pain, all the suffering, all the deaths, that's not very far away. You know, whether it's a financial reward, an emotional reward, a travel reward, that dividend is coming very soon because the worst is likely behind us. I certainly hope it is. And if we've been able to get through with only the scratches that we've got on this level, then we've got a really good chance to move forward in the future in fantastic shape. We're now finding what that new normal looks like. You know, things are opening up, your travel is getting back on, you know, restrictions are easing, passports, COVID passports are being introduced. You know, again, you know, the vaccination being key. We're going to see what life's going to come out. And the next six months is going to have a lot of challenges as people work out what new normal is and will they conform. The fact of the matter is you have no choice. Society has changed. The world has changed. Have you changed? You know, we have a new opportunity to restart, to rekindle. Let's make it the best we can. And let's somehow make the most of all that we've been through for the last little while. On that note, I'm finished. And I'm welcoming you to the new world, however it is in your way. Good luck with it. Hope you enjoy it. And I'll see you again next year. Thank you.